Excuse me, um, I wonder if you could help me, please. Uh, I want to buy a BBC Micro. A what? A BBC Micro. A BBC Micro. A BBC Micro. I don't think we've got any BBC Micros here, Grandma. What's that, then? That? That's a 4 gigabyte Hewlett-Packard notebook running Windows 10, unless I'm very much mistaken. What's the difference between that and a BBC Micro? About 35 years and a wireless mouse to you, Chief. Well, I'd like one of those then, please. You sure? Yes, please. All right. <laughs> this is going to be good. Well, as you can see, it's got all the inputs. It's got USB slots and a DVD drive. Uh, what do I do with all my old games cassettes? <laughs> what did you say? Nothing, nothing. You said what about my old games cassettes, didn't you? No, no, I didn't, honestly. All right. So you got your notebook. Do you want Siri with it? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> you only get Siri with iPhones, Chief. Do you want a BIOS? Uh, no, I won't. <laughs> you won't be able to start it up without a BIOS, Grandma, I'm afraid. Oh, of course, yes, I want a BIOS. All right. What sort of hard drive are you looking for? What sort have you got? Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, no, no clues. Uh, about medium? How many bytes, exactly? Oh, I should think about three. <laughs> uh, no, 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 2,000. <laughs> uh, one trillion. One trillion. One terabyte. So you know all about it then, do you? You want a one terabyte hard drive? Yeah, uh, a one terabyte hard drive. Uh, do you want a graphics card? Yes. Do you want a printer? Yes. Do you want a bag on your head? Yes. There you are. Bag on your head. So you got your notebook, you got your hard drive, your graphics card, and of course, you got your bag on your head. Now, do you want YouTube and SoundCloud? No, I do not want stupid things like YouTube and SoundCloud. Nah, I suppose you're right there, Chief. All you get on them is unoriginal sketches from around the archives. And now, for the young at heart and weak in the head, it's episode 22 of Round the Archives. everyone and welcome to episode 22 of around the archives i'm andrew and i'm lisa and there's lots of people coming along later yes hello hello welcome to it's going to be a bit of a sort of um looking at the future sort of issue in some ways yeah, apart isn't from it? when it's not apart from when it's not i mean we never have themes that go all the way through um but yes, we're going to be a bit computery this we are. this time round. A little bit, and, and yes, and a bit Sid Jamesy, and a bit Sid Jamesy as well. A mm. uh, couple of odds and ends from last time. Yes, um, Arthur Lowe was born uh, in 1915. Yes. I don't think we actually we didn't specified, say that. No. did we? Or, no. um, but yeah, there, there we go. Um, and 
Uh, Oliver Cromwell. It is Oliver Cromwell. Sorry, I completely missed Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, because we, we had the song in the good old days about the ruin um, that Cromwell knocked about a bit. Which I would dispute. And you argued that mm. the Cromwell that knocked down more ruins was, was Thomas. Thomas Cromwell. Yes. And they weren't ruins. Well, not when he started. Not when he started. <laughs> they weren't when he finished. I mean, yeah, um, obviously. So you, you better just clarify who Thomas Cromwell is versus Oliver Cromwell. Well, Thomas Cromwell was the chief minister to Henry VIII. Right. Um, and he, he saw, oversaw the dissolution of the monasteries. Yeah, yeah. And the wealth went to Henry VIII. Mm. Um, Oliver Cromwell was his, I think, great nephew. Mm-hmm. There might be another great now. I think it's just one great. Okay. Um, he was descended from his sister's line, but his sister's son became Thomas Cromwell's ward, so he took Cromwell's name. Okay. So that's how it, it descends from that side of the family. We talk about this bit in one of our recent videos that yeah. we did. I should just clarify, in that video I said um, Sherbourne Castle and I meant Corfe Castle. Because yeah. Oliver Cromwell's, well not Oliver Cromwell's, the Roundheads blew up. Because Corfe Castle, which is Corfe again Castle. fairly local to us, yes. is a ruin. It's a ruin. And it was blown up by, by the Roundheads. Yes. But not Oliver Cromwell particularly. But only in his cause I well, suppose. Well I'm not even sure if he was technically <laughs> the leader of the Roundheads at that point. We'd have to look. The timeline's all sort of weird. But there so, you go. Yes. So more history. Yes. Um, and there's a story about a monkey as well. There's a story about a monkey but you'll have to watch the video for yes. that. Yeah so yes we've got lots and lots of videos mm-hmm. um, now. Yes. I think we've got over 70 now. Probably yeah. 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 And uh, the blog of course is Going strong. Going apace. Mm-hmm. So lots of lots to read and lots to see. Mm-hmm. But lots to listen to yes. as well. So, but don't, so. Yeah, don't go and listen and read. Sorry, watch and read now. Stay and listen to this and then go and have a look. Yeah. Yes, we are multimedia, aren't yes. we? Yes, <laughs> very much so. So first up, Warren joins us on the sofa to have a look at the early days of microcomputers yes. with the computer program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. 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 Warren's here. Hello. Hello, Warren. It's hello, a nice sunny Warren. day. It is. It's a beautiful sunny day, isn't it? Yes, so we've been sat indoors watching the computer program. Of course. What else would you do on a sunny day? Exactly. Why what? would you want to go outside? Warming our computer chips. Yes. Yeah. 1982 was apparently information technology year. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. No. no. I well. was 10, I wouldn't have realised. I was 12. Yeah. You were 40, weren't you? I was, I was ancient, yeah. <laughs> But the computer program is part of what's known as the BBC Computer Literacy Project. That's easy for you to say. Yeah. So this was um, based around the BBC Micro, which was commissioned, you know, for this for this project. It's sort of in the vein of things like um, On the Move, which was sort of yeah, adult education, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so it's, so, it's, so it's from that, that sort of background. <laughs> so the setup is you've got two main presenters in the studio mm-hmm. um you've got ian mcnaught davis who is the computer expert a man yeah. with personality yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you've got chris Searles. Yes. yeah who reminds me of a very disturbing sort of uh nazi interrogator <laughs> why is that 
He's very stern and stands up straight and talks very quietly and menacingly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting okay. you to say that. <laughs> Chris, but Chris is very much the sort of man in the street that he, who knows nothing about computers. Christ, it must have been thick in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and Mac is here to explain what yeah. computers are and what they're good for. Mm. Mm. Um, although he's not very keen on games, no. I know. Is no. he keep, mm. whenever they mention games, he's a bit sneering. What's the, what's the, he always recoils, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, Mac, Mac regards um, using computers just for games as degrading, mm. which is a little bit ironic considering the things people use them for these days. But never mind. Yeah, watching cat videos. Yeah, watching uh, cat videos and sneezing pandas. Sneezing pandas. <laughs> yeah. But we we sort of kick off with some nice filming work. Yeah. In episode one at Stonehenge. Yeah, I think he must have a clause in his contract that he gets to go out on location yeah. at least yeah. once every episode. Yeah, because Matt goes to all sorts of places. He goes to the, the Isle of Wight. He goes to the steam fair at, oh, um, yes. at Blanford. He, he uh, goes in the maze at Hampton Court. With canine. And, and then he does a bit of ploughing, like he's... Mm. Um, no, of, technically he didn't do the ploughing. Well, sort of, well, he pats a horse. He pats a horse. And mm. Only the one horse. horse. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I'm going back to the steam fair very, very quickly. I'm yeah. just reminded of a comment you just made. What's that? You, not you, you made just yeah. recently, but years back regarding two pumps pumping a bo- uh, bucket of water. Oh yes, the the Stairpane steam rally, as it was. One of the highlights for me was it was a little sort of tiny steam engine which had a bucket of water and an empty bucket, and the, the whole point that it could move the bucket, the water from one bucket to the other bucket. Why you just didn't move the bucket? Because it would have been quicker. <laughs> I really don't know. I never quite understood that. Anyway, um, these are very much the early days of home computing. Yeah. Um, had you actually encountered any computers up to this point, either of you? I, I, sorry, I was 10. I had um, a games console, an Atari 2600. 2600. The, the sort of wooden thing. The, well, it wasn't wooden. Ooh, it was like yes. Bakelite. Yeah, yeah, with, with the knobs. With the knobs. With the knobs. You just plugged the game into the top, and it was instantly working. Which cartridges, a, a yeah. cartridges, yeah. And it was it was a real shock when I went actually got a computer, and it took ages to load anything. <laughs> but yeah, I had um, one called oh, I forgot what it's called, but it was a jungle game, and it had great mm. noises. It yeah. used to go da da da, and ET. How did it go? Da, da, da. Oh, I like that. <laughs> and ET, which was the most boring game ever. <laughs> but did you have them at school? I think we experienced the same thing, didn't we? Yeah, and also with the computers. Yes, um, I remember there was, a, was there was a there was a t- we did have a terminal at Cranbourne that we sort of dialed up down the phone line yeah. to. I think it was the computer centre in Bournemouth, and which it, might have been at where the university is. Yeah. Um, but we did actually write a few programs, and you could send them off. And you had punch cards. I was about to yeah. say, I remember seeing punch cards. I never knew how the blasted mm. thing worked. And I, it was fairly large and cumbersome. And I used to be really disappointed because all it produced was this tic-a-tac card yeah. at the end. And I thought, well, is that, the, is that, is that a computer? That doesn't seem like it on the used to get the, the printout on green, green and white paper, which yeah. was really wide with perforations yes, yes. down the edges. On the dot matrix printer, yes. Because <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I've said before that when we, were, we our school did go to the computer centre one, right. one, one day, and we were all sat around the terminals, and on my terminal it came up, Andrew, your shirt is hanging out, <laughs> which is just my 
um, teacher sending me messages. <laughs> I wondered how the computer. Times haven't changed. Have you? No, knew, knew that. You said Max buttons are very undone. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost it's doom, almost down they? to his navel almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's... hello girls. I know yes. about computers. Yeah, um, I'm a computer programmer. <laughs> but they talk about sort of difficult tasks for the computer. Yes. Um, like forecasting the weather, yes. which frankly we still can't do, can't do completely that accurately. accurately. Yeah. But they go and look at the Cray 1 machine, which was this big, tall, round thing. Um, one of the few computers you could actually sit on because yeah. it's got sort of comfy chair arrangement <laughs> around it that you can sit on. In case you get tired. And then Crystal whips out his ZX81. As, as you do. As you do. Uh, <laughs> then there's... Um, a load of computer magazines that he leaves through with all the adverts. And I remember a lot of the adverts. Right. I don't remember the one with Ronnie Barker in, though. Um, but as they said, they're using yet. sort of famous people to um, advertise to advertise it. this sort of thing. Um, they, they've got a Space Invaders game in the Which they seem to switch on well. as he walks towards it. Yeah. And then switch it off as he walks away from it. So it doesn't make too much noise. And then they've got a watch as well, which has got four games four on games. it. Four games, yeah. yeah. So, you know, this this is... I said this is is all early days for it, but um. it's very. It, it, it's the, the thing that struck me. It was trying to kick off the shackles of Open University, mm. uh, and one of those, you know, um, bearded gentlemen standing in front of blackboard, giving you lots of facts, but being inclusive, as you say, with the Chris Searle character being the person going, "I know nothing about computers. Tell yeah. me about computers, Mac," because I'm I'm slightly frightened by them. And Mac right. being very engaging, whereas Chris was very bland about it to a certain extent, and he it had to be sold to him. Yeah, it? yeah. Chris is the sort of non-believer, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, I, yeah. I'll buy one if you can sell it to me. Yeah. Sell me the idea. I mean, there's a little sort of film sequence about uses of computers. I noticed the speak and spell machine. Yes, which is the thing that it would say now spell color, <laughs> and you would. Spell type c-o-l-o-u-r into it it would go wrong try again because it was of course it was american english yeah. it would it would was it that would texas speak. instruments i believe it? so yeah. yeah the ti speaking spell do you, yeah do you, uh, just um, throw a random thing in there with have absolutely nothing no interest to people and when, when you went to qe you were given a list of things we needed to buy and one no. of them was a texas instruments calculator well, was it, i didn't that? have a oh, right. I, I had a casio oh, uh, right, okay an fx 39 i believe but uh, um, they've got a Vic Twenty in the studio oh. playing a fruit machine game, which Mac disapproves of. <laughs> they've got some uh, cassettes and floppy disks set up as well. Um, I mean, let's talk briefly about loading from cassette. <laughs> talk or forever. not loading from cassette half Cause, the time because um, you know games like The Hobbit on the Spectrum. You'd have to load in, yeah. and it would take about sort of four or five minutes. Yeah, and then it'd load the picture really slowly. You'd yeah. get the top of it, and it'd slowly progress down. Yeah. and then it'd fill all the, the colour in. in. That's right. Yeah, um, and then you'd start the game, and nothing would happen because you'd spend half an hour exploring the room with Gandalf telling you to hurry up and Thorin sitting down singing about gold. Yeah. How far did you get in the Hobbit? I used to get outside and immediately get killed by something. Warren, you said you got in the barrels once. I got in the barrels, but every time I got in the barrels, I got thrown down the thing you're supposed <laughs> to land at the bottom to escape. I, I think got, I might have got in the barrels and done I might, that as well. I might have died a lot. Yeah. But what, what, what um, I was going to say terminals, what computers did you have? I I, was I, I had the Atari games console for quite a long while and then I think in about 1986, Seven. Um, I had the, the um, ZX 
ZX Spectrum Plus Two, really? which was had a, it was a themed one because it was a James Bond. It was like you know now you get like um, Xboxes with FIFA or whatever. Mm. This was a James Bond themed one, and I, my, I for some reason my parents decided this was the one to go for, um, and it had the Living Daylights on it, yeah. which was just shooting at stuff. Really, I never played that. No, game, and I, I didn't get very far on it, but um, that's when I got the Hobbit. I think I had the Hobbit on that one. Are you grinning at Warren? Well, when you're talking games, it just come back to me uh, a, a wave of nostalgia. Attic Attack. Oh, I had the ticket Attack. Yeah, yeah, so that was excellent. We used to yeah. sit and play that quite a lot, didn't we? I found that on the uh, on YouTube the other day, a little playthrough of, of of a ticket Attack oh, yeah. and Jet Set Willy. Because you can still get emulators for a lot of these games now to yeah. run on your computer, and oh, frankly, right. they're in some ways they're easier to play now because you can actually save them. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas previously you just die and that'd be it. I do remember as well, um, uh, Jane, my friend Jane. When I got to know her at secondary school, um, I think it must have been quite early on, so I might have been 84, 85, she had a ZX Spectrum, mm. and it was really exciting, because yeah. it, it was the little, the, one with the, little, the little one with the rubber keys, and we played games on that, and I remember we got called down to tea, come stop playing on the computer and come over <laughs> tea. I'm very jealous of you two because you, because um, I had a Commodore 64. Well, you see, to me, a Commodore 64 was quite a posh computer. Really. I think I might have had a Commodore actually as well. Thinking about it, but the problem with the Commodore was you could plug your games into um, your cassette recorder. Yeah, we had to buy the blasted. Oh, there was a. You had a, to a, a dedicated one, was yeah, 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 yeah. And we used to, we also used to. Um, a friend of ours used to um, had a tape, two tape cassette recorder and you used to pirate the games oh, for yes, us yeah. yeah thinking about it I think I might have had a Commodore 64 with the, I don't know if that would have been before the Spectrum or afterwards they're, they're roughly about the same time so, well the original Spectrum yeah, and the think, Commodore 64 are fairly close together well. I, think, I, always yeah. used to, uh, I always used to think the 64 looked like a large um, bar of dairy mm. milk chocolate can I tell you the 64 the Spectrum and the BBC Micro were three of the most popular yeah. computers sort of at their home mm. The BBC Micro was definitely for posh kids, mm. though. It yeah. was always in the schools, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah we, we had schools, it at school. Yeah. But yeah. we didn't have, I think we only had about six, so you had to sort of it take been, it in turns. Yeah, it wouldn't have been until about 83, 84, I think, that I saw my first BBC, mm-hmm. and that was at school. There was the Commodore Pet in the computer room oh, at, good at Lord, Q, yes. QE. With the um, screen The, the, the white, white housing. thing, yes, yeah. I, I always remember, liked yeah. the design of that. It looked futuristic, yeah. yeah. Very Doctor who wasn't it? And there was a 380Z upstairs that you weren't allowed to touch because it was so expensive, you know. I I did see it once or twice, but that was all right at the top of the maths building. And, you know, (laughs) that was hallowed ground, that was. (laughs) In 86, I did my word processing exam on BBC Basic. All right. In the the business studies block. (laughs) I've been talking to somebody at work about computers, and he remembers he's a bit younger than us. He's born sort of um, 80, 81. Yeah. And oh, they, they had um, an Apple Mac computer, and it came with games, and they weren't supposed to play the games, and they played the games of and course. got detention <laughs> for playing the games. Or well, he got detention because he showed everybody where the games were on the computer and got blamed <laughs> for it. Anyway, let's go back to the first episode. And then we, we now cut to a film of... Um, a woman who owns a sweet shop. Yeah. Yes. Who's, uh, you know, she's she's got some kids there. She goes, well, these are sixpence and, and stuff like that. And the camera sort of tracks along the sweets. And I spotted some boxes of Terry's Neapolitans, which, you know, which is real is. early 80s yeah. sort of chocolates. Um, her, her door's good, isn't it, when she barricades the door. Oh, yeah, it must be a rough part out. of town. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's a sign up. You said, "Be alert." Yeah. Be alert, and then some the, criminal's face. Yeah, yeah with sunglasses on. And yeah. then she goes into her computer room where she's got a, a, com- a Commodore Pet mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah, and it's got a cozy. Yeah, it's a computer cozy. Like you, you like the ones you used to have for typewriters. Yeah, you cover them up. Make sure you cover your typewriter up before you leave. Absolutely. Yes. Keep your equipment free. But she's bemoaning, she's bemoaning the fact they've got a new bypass mm. and, thus, and thus people don't buy as many sweets. sweets. I don't quite see the so connection. She's got, she's it, probably, invest- sorry. it probably means that it's diverting traffic away from her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she's invested in this computerised system for buying sweets and giving us all um, high sugar levels and our teeth falling out. <laughs> and the computer's working out that Johnny's coming through the door. He will always buy these sweets. But we could flog him these. <laughs> but then we, then we cut back to the studio, and uh, they've got a copy of Computer and Video Games magazine. I used to read oh, a lot of computer yeah. magazines. There was Your Computer. Uh, and they say about, in those days, you'd have listings of games that yes. you could type into the oh. computer. Um, they look at, what was it, Secrets of the Tarot is the one. But of, the way these, especially the general magazines worked... You'd buy it each month, and you were lucky if there was one game for your yeah. brand of computer, because all the computers use slightly different basic. A BBC program wouldn't run on a ZX Spectrum, yeah. for example. You'd have to manually sort of translate it, and you know, a lot of this stuff sort of used special sort of commands that weren't necessarily on the machines. Um, did you type out many programs? Yeah. Yes, but the problem was, and this is the thing we were just going to you'd spend hours typing something out, and I was typing a game out for about four hours. You can make one small mistake. And it won't work. And it won't work. Yeah. And you have to start again. So that didn't last very long. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, then they get the cassette recorder out and load up, as uh, Max says, the old wall game, Ooh. which is uh, a rather clunky version of Breakout. Um, as we've said before, three two one used it as a elimination game right. in the nineteen eighty one series. And they the, always, two, the two couples playing breakout, and they always yeah. give the joystick to the gentle, or the, or the whatever it is, to the gentleman first, because obviously men are better than playing you know, playing games and doing computer stuff. Yeah. But um, you know, you type in L O A D quote wall, and then list. <laughs> to list it and run to run it and Chris is amazed that it's simple English words. I can remember typing in load and, and run. Yes, so yeah. much so he has to have them confirmed for yeah. it, doesn't he? Yes. It? You so said, L-O-A-D, stop spelling yeah. stuff! <laughs> well you said if he goes to the BBC bar and he's got to order a round of drinks, you know, somebody says I'll have a gin. G-I-N? <laughs> but yes, uh, Mac uses the word degrading at this point yeah, to do yes. with games. Game. I don't know whether he's talking about games or Chris. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then we see Prestel oh. in action. Uh, yes. Now that was the future for that me. Was, yeah. The idea you could have a f- telephone link to another computer. Mm. Um, and here Chris uses it um, to buy a ticket to Paris. Well, if you know, some of the school coaches had a Prestel number on the back of them. Did they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, blimey. Tours used to. Oh, gosh. They what? had a Telex and stroke Prestel number. No, I, n- I never noticed yeah. that. I wasn't looking at yeah, that. Yeah, it came back to me as I was watching right. that. And then Chris gets on his flight to Paris. And there was much rejoicing. Which cost him 64 quid. Whoa. Yeah. Which seems a lot. And then mm. you, just as you think the episode's over... He comes on, back. No, on, uh, <laughs> on comes computer expert um, Rex Malik. <laughs> Mavic Chen. <laughs> who, who's sitting there in his like evil genius chair. Who's hollowed out Leia. Yes, uh, stroking his cat and uh, <laughs> sort of pontificating on where 
the future of sort of computers mm. and society are going to go. I mean, you get him at the end of most episodes talking about sort of the implications of what we've we've a, looked at. Like like Andrew, he does a. Do you agree, Lisa, that he does a very good Welsh accent? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm not quite sure what his accent is. I can't yeah. now. Can't find anything about him. Find out where he was born. I mean, there's there's ten episodes in total of the computer mm. program, and we we looked at three. I, I've looked at most of them previously, uh, but the one we then jumped onto was looking at artificial intelligence, and this, this is the infamous one with K nine in Hampton Court maze, um, telling him that you can go in a straight line, <laughs> <laughs> and then you get some beardy expert with a weird collar. <laughs> Uh, what was it? You said it looked like it was stuck out, but I think he, it might just be like um, a, a, one of those standy up collars. Yeah, it but, looked old. But they're talking about computers comprehending language yeah. and recognizing visual images, like somebody sitting on a chair. If Max sits on a chair, or there's a painting of Whistler's mother also <laughs> sitting on a chair, can it, can the computer recognize what what it's looking at? Then you get Chris's car in the studio; it won't start. A bit like Chris. Chris, uh, it was just the kind of car I imagine Chris Sill to be driving as well. Clapped out Morris Minor, isn't it? <laughs> Which they make it go by hitting it with a hammer, hammer. <laughs> just in the right place, it's and suddenly it goes. Yeah. But we were saying about computers on cars now, and they don't even talk about that sort of thing. No, they're no. talking about using a computer to fix a car yeah. and diagnose a problem. But the idea that you'd have computers on board. And you controlling another computer. Yeah, controlling yeah. the system. I mean, to to do a service on a computer now, on a car now, mm. you have to plug a laptop into yeah. it, basically, don't you? So, and, and, and as you were saying about the Prestel thing, they mm. talk about it within talking just to one particular yeah, thing. Yeah, a more of a business environment, yeah. isn't it? The idea that you'd have that facility in the home is is less thought about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll we talk about that in in a minute. Um, it, then, we, then we get at the doctors and somebody's <laughs> filling in a form, and I, it's laborious <laughs> yeah, as well. And yeah. they're saying smoking, no alcohol, and they write social. social. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and then you get two really slow robot arms playing Playing-ish. chess with each other, which goes on for about two minutes, doesn't it? It does. Yes. But uh, yeah, that's that, that's quite amusing. Mm. Then for the final episode, mm. as we said, out of town with Mac Hargreaves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you get the cookies man. Oh, the cookies, cookies man! It's, it's, this, it's this guy who's got a very high voice, and he keeps on talking about how you could, instead of planting a raw wheat, you could uh, plant a raw cookies. <laughs> and he sounds like Kermit the Frog. He does. He does. <laughs> and the computer would say, uh, "Farmer Brown, I, I think you should not just make the chocolate chip cookies this year." <laughs> Because there are other cookies that you should make. <laughs> and pickles as well. And pickles. pickles. You can have a sure. raw pickles. You can't say anything that ends in sort of L-E-S. Or, wait, or, or E-S. He's utterly brilliant and yeah. utterly bonkers. Yeah. With the thickest glasses you've ever oh, seen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, you think my eyesight's bad, but you know. <laughs> yeah. They go close on him and his eyes are magnified about three times yeah. by the glasses. Then, then, then you've got the dairy farmer. Yeah. With the information on all the cows in the, the computer, the cows that he's going to sack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's one cow that's underperforming. Underperforming, yeah. yes. And he's going to have to t- take it into the office and have a word, word with, with it. it. <laughs> and you know, if it if it doesn't buck its ideas up, it's getting its P forty five. Chris then whips out a pound note. Yes, mm. real y- money. Y- young people may not know what a pound <laughs> note is. It's something that isn't made of animal fat these days, <laughs> yeah. is it? Yeah. yeah, it's a paper. Not made of tallow. No. Mm. 
that Chris pays his electricity bill. And then you get this long film sequence of this bit of paper going through the banking system. It goes to a building down the road from one van to another van, and that van drives down. Why didn't they just keep it in the van and go all the way down the road? And then there's shots of, of blokes pushing trolleys with, yeah. like, boxes of stuff. That won't on. go into lips. You said one of them looked like Mick McManus. <laughs> you better explain who that was. Mick McManus, the, the well-known lunchtime uh, wrestler. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's all this jaunty music and uh, narration by Rex Malik. And again, they never really consider how now I've got a thing sitting over there where I can transfer money between accounts yeah. just by pressing some buttons. So again, they don't quite sort of join up all the all the sort of technology. Do you think if they went to another season, we may have looked at a particular aspect? I mean, you get, the, the, future, you get yeah. the producer on at the end saying that, you know, there's things that we couldn't cover in this yeah. first series. And of course... Although that's it for the computer program, it then goes on to making the most of the micro and micro live, which, you know, we haven't had time to really go through. Um, But as with all these things, there was a book to accompany the series, which Mm -hmm. Lisa tracked down a few weeks ago. We'll have to show you that in a bit, Warren. Okay. If we can find Um, it. But I think it's the ultimate irony here in, in terms of trying to predict the future that no way would they have thought in 35 years time that we'd be sitting here with a little tiny tablet in our hand uh, going onto youtube mm. finding broadcast episodes of the computer program streaming it to our telly via wi-fi yeah. <laughs> and then recording a podcast about it using another computer and then distributing it using uh, a, a website yeah so that is totally outside of of what they're looking at. I mean, they're, they're concerned about sort of people shuffling paper and things like that and how the computer sort of replaces them. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just interesting, the way that the things that they don't look at or have yeah. no way of yeah. predicting. Because um, they say about sort of, you know, you'd fill in a form and the form would be standardised. But that's not even true now because no. sometimes when you like you pay in a cheque... Yes. Um, they're the wrong size to go in the machine. Yeah, because there's an automated paying um, uh, pay machine at most banks, but yeah. if it's the wrong size of cheque, mm. it won't take it, and you have to go and queue up. You still up, have to go to the... Um, <laughs> and, and queue behind old people paying you money in, like, two tw- Ps yeah. or whatever. <laughs> or getting their change. I want to send five pounds to my grandson in <laughs> Australia. <laughs> but you have to remember how... You know how unknown computers were generally at yeah. this point. I think there was a lot of scepticism over hmm. them as well because all they did people see were, them for toys. Yeah, I mean, people were either afraid of them or dismissive. I yeah. think the idea that everything I, in your house would have a computer in it. I think the fact that was uh, most of it. Once again, it was jumped on by the um, commercial aspect of selling games, and hmm. that's what seemed to take over the psyche of people. Yeah. We're buying a expensive games console here. Yeah. For want of a better thing, uh, well, no, actually, you're you're picking up a piece of technology that one day will fire up your car, will turn your kettle on, will turn your heating on, will do absolutely yeah. anything that you want it to. For um, example, you've got a new piece of hardware today. I have. You? Yes, you've got I, a new phone just turned up. I've got a new phone yeah. turned up today that's got more memory than about all of the computers put together. Yeah, yeah. shown in there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, as you said, the idea that you could be on the bus and get your phone out and turn on your heating at home. Yeah. <laughs> no. Doesn't even get. They don't. Doesn't even register. Service, yeah, no, but, but yeah, that's the thing. This is very much an introductory series. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not trying to. I think if they'd had started doing things and then they they take it away from their remit mm. of explaining 
how computers are in that day and age. Uh, I, I think it would have been more of tomorrow's world for yeah. it to have done this is computers in the future. I mean, yes, we did briefly look at look around you with yeah. a <laughs> computer episode, and and that's that's very good as a parody of about. You've got the computer for women, the Petticoat 5, and yes. Bournemouth, yes. The, the computer that escapes to Bournemouth. Which is made of wood. Which is made of wood. wood. Well, or it's made of plastic, made to look like wood. Because there was this thing in the 80s that if you've got the technology... Yeah, yeah you make it look like wood. You yeah. make it look a piece of the furniture. Yeah, like yeah. it's a so piece it's of more furniture. Accept, um, yeah. So it's Where aesthetically is, more acceptable, isn't it? We've gone away from that now yeah. and everything looks more futuristic and high-tech. Mm. Because we want everything to look like it's out of sort of um, Star Wars yeah. or Star Trek or something. You know, it's got to look futuristic. Now, talking of programmers, yeah. we take a lot. We were talking about Babbage, weren't we? Oh, well, yes. You were talking yeah. about yeah. Babbage, Babbage yeah. yeah. So um, we said about the Petticoat 5. Yeah. Yes. You, you um, furnished me some information that I never knew. Yes. And Lisa's about to tell us about oh, it. Oh, yes, we've got to say this. I we? took it for granted that Babbage was the hmm. main... Yes. The main man. And although no, he, he was, he invented the analytical engine, yeah. which is the sort of forerunner to many Although computers. he never sort of actually made it. He never actually it. made it. They did make one more recently, yeah, they and have, it worked. they have made one, and it does go. And yeah. he, he also got help from um, Lord Byron's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, Ada Lovelace. Yeah. And she wrote the first computer program, uh, effectively. Yeah. And they tried it on the analytical engine, and it worked. And she was the first person, because Babbage thought of it just as something that would sort of crunch numbers. She was the first person to think, now hang on a minute, it could, you could put something else in it and it could make music, or it could do this, it could do that. And this was in 1843. Yeah, I mean, she was born in, what, 1815? 1815, in yeah. the wow. same year as the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, so, so that's over 200 years yeah, ago she was such, born. Yeah. Such, to have such, such foresight, vision, yeah. you know, and, and to be a woman in that day and age... Mm. It's amazing. Yeah, so that joke about the petticoat five. Yes. Yeah. Is it, I don't know whether they knew it at the time, no, but but you know, it's it's you know, it, she's she was an amazing woman. Mm. She really was, and the reason that she was introduced to mathematics is because the, her mother believed that her father was mad. <laughs> so to stop her from going down the same route, she tried to install sort of mathematics and all that sort of more logical thing mm-hmm. in her. Yeah. Well, he abandoned the family, went to live in okay. live abroad, and, and died. He, he, she never met him. No. He left the family when she was a month old, and she never met him. Yeah. Well, so. well whenever I do this podcast, every day is a school day. <laughs> <laughs> you, always, you always learn a thing when you yeah. come here, don't you? Right. But yes, wow. so yeah, we, we, we owe quite a lot to yes. Ada Lovelace. But there you are, there's yes. the computer programme. I said yeah. it's, very, it's a very interesting historical document. Um, and even a couple of years down the line it's amazing how much computers change just over the next couple of years so i think it's very well worth having a look if you're interested in that sort of history of of technology and how it was used just look back and see how much it's advanced from then to now and what you can do in your just with your phone yeah now I mean, but you people edit video then. on their phones now. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's amazing. This has so. been quite an experience to do this review. Yeah. yeah. It's it's taken us down avenues and it's it's really fascinating. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this. Okay. I was sceptical, to be honest, yeah. because I was never a big one in the 80s for computers. No, no. Um, I found them slightly frightening, even though I had one. But that's the thing. Yeah. You're, you're, you've now got a phone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm and not, you don't think about it. Not yeah. at yeah. all, no. You, you're not... You, that's the point. You're not... You don't have to know how to program, and it seemed to be that you, mm. in those days, you had to learn how to program, and that's mm. nonsense because yeah. 
you're a user of it you're not a programmer but now i think it's more down to positive marketing than yeah. perhaps it was then yeah but yeah, yeah technology is, is all around us it's in yeah. your, you know yeah. it's in your telly it's in your washing machine it's I'm, everywhere yeah. i would say to people i mean probably most of the people that listen to this are not but don't be frightened of computers so many people are still frightened of of doing something wrong and just you... never name your computer hell no <laughs> no and you can't really so just yeah. enjoy it have fun yeah. okay yeah. well thank you Bert. no thank you right we're going to do something else then right. okay okay bye bye publication entitled The Computer Book, which explains what computers can do and how they work, will be available from bookshops from this Friday, the price £6.75. And for details of the materials and equipment available, including the BBC microcomputer system and the linked NEC correspondence course in programming, please send a stamped addressed envelope at least 12 inches by 9 inches to Broadcasting Support Services, PO Box 7, London W36XJ White Heat, a poem about computers on TV. Way back when computers were the size of a room, a mechanical mansion took mankind to the moon. Nowadays your toaster could fly people to Mars, whilst kids hacked the Pentagon in flashy coffee bars. Back then we knew just how the future would be. Television told us all about this exciting technology, how computers would come to dominate the earth, claiming to be our benefactors for all that was worth. Rooms wall to wall, with blinking coloured lights, burbling familiar bleeps of radiophonic delights, whirring great big spinning spools of magnetic tape, electronic machines with our future to shape. Punch cards were shuffled, spat out and fed back in. Slotted cardboard ghosts now haunting the machine. The future is arriving. The future is now Tim. The future's so much better with a natty acronym. Wotan's will-operating thought analogue. Space intruder detector Sid had us all agog. Remac was a remote electromatic agent killer. Night Industries 2000 was Kit. Far sillier. Doctor Who met Boss, intent on world domination, a bimorphic operational system supervising station. Then ran into the Oracle and the war machine Mentalis. Surely those computers had far bigger plans than this. Zoanan just went mad a bit, care of the mighty Tom. But at least it didn't want to end all life with atom bombs. Ziggy stayed at home whilst Sam leapt to change beliefs. Holly, Hilly and Queeg added some much-needed comic relief. Batman had a bat computer in a bat cave that was bat freaky. Super smug Dr. Theopolis hung around with Tweaky. There are some friendly, helpful ones like Box and K9, whilst Mr. Smith the fireplace had the odd droll line. The general spent time washing speed learn minds, but went bang flash because it didn't know why. Out in space, the M5 computer took on Captain Kirk, wanting in the main, it seemed, to put him out of work. Liberator Zen was a big brown ball of flashing squares blew up in deep space where they couldn't get the spares then blake's lot got a slave built into scorpio for a time which ended up crashing on a planet named gouda prime hitchhiker's guidebooks deep thought and eddie now here's something for which the world's not ready 
genuine people personalities like the one in Marvin. When Zaphad went a-stealing, turns out he got a bargain. You think that a computer ought to be your pal? Honestly, people, does nobody remember how? There's not much fight in a flashing box of lights, unless that is its aurac, both tetchy and uptight. An automated future, setting Earth's people free in the bright white heat of new technology. In the blink of a bulb, humanity's fate is sealed. Gullible mankind starts to see truth revealed. Like David Brent, for every Tim, there's a boss, you see, many of them intent on starting World War Three, Humans must prepare themselves to have new cybermasters, who aren't creative but can count things up so much faster. In preparation, have a set of insolvable equations ready, or make computers wonder what precisely love might be. Save the world once again with a witty payoff joke, as the room is filling up with big blue clouds of smoke. So as that tiny tinny voice is fading down to zero, Rejoice, rejoice, as the humans are again the heroes. Yet remember, it was Harold who built the machine. And people made Samaritan, if you know what I mean. Computers may be here to stay in pockets everywhere, sitting on desks in front of us and becoming more aware. From time to time remind them who really pulls the strings and beware of anybody bearing overstretched acronyms. Thank you to Mr. Warren for helping us as usual. Yes, thank you, Warren. He will, of course, be back at some point. Yes. Well, we hope so anyway. Well, quite soon, I think. Thanks also to Martin Holmes for his lovely poem. Yes, it was, it was very nice. Yes, the first bit of poetry I think we found. Yes. Hey. yes. Not uh, the last, I hope. I know. Mm. Well, Martin will be back later in this mm-hmm. issue. But now, uh, Mr. Paul Chandler, yes. the shy yeti himself, mm-hmm. uh, comes back and talks about... Bless his house. Hello listeners, it's me, Paul the Shayetti, or some know me, Paul Chandler, yes. Yes, I've been here before, you may recognise me. Anyway, I'm here to uh, give you a little article about a uh, an ITV sitcom from the early 70s, one that until a few days ago I knew very little about. The series is Bless This House, and it aired on ITV from the 2nd of February 1971, to the 22nd of April 1976. It stars Sid James and Diana Coupland, and it was created by Vince Powell and Harry Driver, although other writers included Dave Freeman and Carla Lane. In 2004, Bless This House was ranked by a BBC poll as the 67th best British sitcom. Yes. Um, well, let me see if I can give you some facts. Um, so there were six seasons... 65 episodes. Yeah, they, they were quite long seasons. Obviously, I'm going to review all 65 episodes. No, 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 I'm not. But I'll come to what I am going to do in a minute. Now, what else can I tell you? The show was produced and directed by William G. Stewart, who was later the host of 15 to 1. And the theme music was written by Jeff Love. There was also a comic strip version in TV comic Lookin'. 
Now, the main characters are, are Sid James as Sid Abbott, Diana Coupland as his wife Jean, Robin Stewart as his son Mike, Sally Geeson as Sally, his the daughter, Anthony Jackson as the next door neighbour, Anthony Jackson who was in who was in early seasons of Rent a Ghost, and Patsy Rowlands as Betty Lewis, Trevor's wife, and yes, and Jean's best friend, yeah, the other half of the next door neighbour. Now, bless his house was set in Putney and. Uh, Sid was a travelling stationery salesman, although the episodes I've seen, I don't think there's any definite mention of, of what his job is, but uh, I guess Bless This House is uh, the last thing that Sid James was involved in. In fact, the series was never cancelled. It ended because he died in between season six and, well, the unproduced season seven. So, uh, so it would appear that it was still successful. There was a season every year between 71 and 76, except there were two seasons in 74 and none in 75. One of those 74 seasons was a, a short season. I was surprised how uh, many of the episodes were written by Carla Lane, uh, to be honest, because I guess she would have already have had success with The Liver Birds. I also associate Carla Lane more with BBC shows, but uh, again, maybe I'm wrong. When I was checking my facts on Carla Lane... I discovered that her real name was Romana Barrack. I don't think I've ever known somebody called Romana other than Romana from Doctor Who. Interesting, I did not know that. So, what episodes am I going to cover? I'm not going to go into great depth, but uh, what I thought I'd do was talk a bit about the first episode, the last episode, and uh, the movie. Yes, there was a movie. We'll come to that in a minute. Now, I actually watched the first... I think three or four episodes. I will only really talk about the uh, the first episode, which is called The Generation Gap. And basically that's how the series starts, showing how Sid doesn't cope with uh, some of the, uh, what he considers eccentric ways of his kids, Mike and Sally. It manages to sort of tiptoe around these sort of differences without exactly being offensive, I'd say. There are quite a few jokes in the first episode where Sid's a little bit concerned that Mike doesn't have a girlfriend and is sort of nervously coming to accept the possibility that Mike might be dating a male ballet dancer. He's not exactly pleased about it, but he doesn't, he doesn't use any of the um, popular slang of the time, if you get my meaning. Um, Jean is a lot more cool about everything, and um, I think she knows a lot more about what's going on and... Um, is quite content to uh, to tease him, as are the kids. But um, uh, I'm not sure if it's this first episode, but um, certainly in those early episodes, there are a number of scenes where uh, Sid gets drunk in the pub, and um, and I did enjoy uh, his drunk acting. I, I would have thought that uh, he would have done drunk acting in Carry On films, but to be honest, I can't remember him actually uh, doing so. I'm, I'm, it may be that I've forgotten any such scenes, but uh, now the first episode, in fact the first seven episodes were made in black and white, and this was due to the ITV colour strike of the time. Although, on the DVD I'd say that rather than being out and out black and white it, it almost looks like it's very, very, very weak colour. Perfectly viewable, perfectly clear, but it's, it's something other than black and white, but... Uh, I do remember back in the day watching old episodes of things like Doomwatch and we seemed to get, end up with prints that had weird sort of tints to them. But uh, I'm sure there are listeners out there who know a bit more about things like that. But uh, all I'm able to do is sit and point and go, well, that doesn't look like black and white. That's something else. 
Um, anyway, so that first episode was screened on the 2nd of February 1971. And over the course of the next few episodes, you get to meet the neighbours. And uh, one of the main locations other than the house is, of course, the pub. I was going to watch a few more episodes from the middle of the series, but uh, instead of doing that, I'm going to talk a bit more about the film. As I say, there, there are 65 episodes, and uh, yes, this is this is literally my first uh, introduction to the show. I would definitely say that I enjoyed the first few episodes. Probably not as much as something like uh, George and Mildred from a few years later, but that is really one of my big favourites, a quite recent discovery of mine. Now, the Bless This House film came out in 1972. All the cast was the same, except that Robin Stewart, who played Mike, was apparently too busy doing summer season in Bournemouth. So Robin Asquith took his place. The brief synopsis of the film is, in 1970s English suburban middle-aged homeowner Sid Abbott just wants to get on with building his illegal whiskey still, but is frustrated by his work-shy son and otherworldly daughter. <laughs> that makes her sound like she's a, <laughs> a sprite or something, or a, or a tooth fairy, I don't know. <laughs> then the rude and arrogant Ronald Baines and his family move in next door. As I say, the cast was mainly the same, except for the son, and, um, and Trevor, the next-door neighbour, the one played by Anthony Jackson, was recast and played by Peter Butterworth instead. But fear not, they did return once the show returned to TV. But uh, Now, the troublesome neighbours from next door are played by Terry Scott and June Whitfield. So this is before Happy Ever After and before Terry and June, but uh, not long before they started doing Happy Ever After. But... Um, Considering the film is directed by Gerald Thomas and produced by Peter Rogers, it's probably the fact that they were in some carry-on films of the early 70s that, that got them their roles. And I, I'd not seen this film before. And if, I don't know, it was retitled Carry On Suburbia or something, then I think it would have made a perfectly decent carry-on film. Except that there are few of the usual carry-on stars in it other than Sid other than Sid James Terry Scott June Whitfield Peter Butterworth and Patsy Rowlands but um, there are some interesting um, guest stars um, Janet Brown plays the next door neighbour who is um, well about to move away Wendy Richard makes a quite brief appearance there's a very fleeting cameo by Johnny Briggs as a truck driver but uh, that's not even a close up uh, Frank Thornton appears and I think he's Sid's boss um, but it's actually a very small um, small role I was kind of expecting that he'd be in more scenes another rent-a-ghost face I noticed was Molly Weir as a lady at a jumble sale again only a very brief appearance one of the things that I most noticed and which is kind of almost irrelevant because obviously there's a lot more scenes set at real houses or in real gardens and the back garden of the the house in this looked exactly <laughs> looks exactly like um my great aunt's house in fact the garage where a lot of the brewing is going on um looks very much like her garage as well but um it, it did make me look to see where it was filmed and actually i should have guessed because there was a removal van near the start of the film which had windsor written on the front and sure enough yes it was filmed in in windsor not putney although there were several exterior scenes shot in burnham village buckinghamshire when the plot reaches a wedding at the very end of the film it is a very 70s carry-on style sort of film but to me that's a good thing early 70s carry-ons are some of my favorites um there were just lots of silly things with people falling in wet concrete getting hosed by garden hoses um getting soot all over their faces just as they're about to go to weddings I mean, it's all quite chucklesome, to be honest. Um, I don't really know what the view is. I know a lot of these cash-in sort of spin-off films from sitcoms of this time 
aren't necessarily regarded as being especially good. But uh, the Bless This House movie is certainly uh, perfectly watchable. And uh, there was one bit that really made <laughs> really made me laugh. It comes at the point where Sally, the daughter, she and her fellow students are very much into environmental campaigning, and they and Sally doesn't agree with the next door neighbour having a bonfire. And uh, she tries to stop the bonfire by uh, using a hose on it, when, of course, this is where everyone ends up getting caught in the spray. But um, the bit that actually made me laugh, the the hose is stuck in the fence and they can't get it out. So Sid suggests that they just turn the water off at the mains. Now the son, Mike, I'm not sure if he's a metalwork teacher. There's mention of him being a teacher or teaching. Anyway, for some, whatever reason, earlier in the film, he's making a sculpture out of metal and using a blowtorch. And, and um, anyway, it turns... It turns out that uh, whilst welding all the metal together, he's welded the thing that turns the water off, um, some sort of key, so which they can't remove. So Sid has to turn the water off. This strange, weird sculpture with like hands, which ends up groping somebody through the fence. It's 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 kind of bizarre, but it is actually a lot funnier than it probably sounds. And if that doesn't suit you, then there is a, a nice food fight just before the uh, final set piece of the film. <laughs> so to finish off with i'm going to jump on about another three or four years to the final season well in the end i watched the last two episodes of the sixth season what was to become the final episode was broadcast on the 22nd of april 1976 as sir james died just four days later he collapsed on stage at the sunderland empire during a performance of the mating season he suffered a heart attack and died on the way to the hospital apparently at the time there were plans for a seventh and an eighth season not to mention a second feature film According to Wikipedia, in an ironic twist of fate, Sid James had told his co-star Diana Coupland, we'll keep making this until one of us kicks the bucket. But so as not to end on a sad note, what did I think of those last two episodes that I watched? Well, to be honest, they seemed just as lively and perky and fun as, as the early episodes I'd watched. I've not seen enough of the middle of the series to know whether they were repeating plot lines, which often does happen in long-running series. By the sixth season, there's a new title sequence, which has shots of the four main characters walking around the streets. I'm a sucker for a new title sequence. In fact, I am tempted to check episodes from each of the seasons just to to see how many different title sequences there are. Oh, I love a title sequence. Although, uh, sometimes it can be a disappointing pursuit. Again, I remember when we were watching George and Mildred. There were a couple of really funny title sequences and a couple of really dodgy ones which look about as cheap as the sort of title sequences that I used to make for my series, Sutton Park, back in the day. A little bit of live action and a hastily applied logo. The later title sequence of Bless This House isn't quite as bad as that, although it's not really achieving a great deal. Nice logo, though. So the last two episodes that I saw, one is called A Matter of Principle. That's <laughs> all about a TV licence. Poor Sid ends up in jail. The TV licence hasn't been paid, although he gave the money to his wife, who gave it to his daughter, who gave it to her brother, who spent it. It's quite a farcical episode, and uh, and it's hard not to enjoy it when Sid is uh, when Sid is representing himself in court. There is no attempt at realism. It's all played very lightly, but uh, but in a way I find pretty endearing. The very last episode begun with all of his family sulking with Sid, and it turns out it's an anniversary. It's not he and Jean's wedding anniversary. It's it's the anniversary of the first date that he proposed to Jean, although she did turn him down, <laughs> and yet she still she still thinks she should celebrate it, particularly if he's paying. Once again, there's the usual misunderstandings, and uh, the only thing I will say is by this stage, Mike and Sally really do look like they should have moved out years ago, but uh, 
Although they must be about the same age, they're living quite a different life, living at home with their parents, compared to the characters in something like Man About the House, who have got their independence and all of the uh, trials and tribulations that that involves. Anyway, while I enjoyed the episodes I watched of Bless This House, I've got the whole box set, all 65 episodes, so uh, I shall dip back into those another time. And uh, it's definitely a series worth checking out. The box that I bought wasn't expensive at all. Anyway, that's it for me. You can hear more of my ramblings on the Charlotte podcast if you want to. Okay, handing back to you now, Andrew and Lisa. Over and out. And thank you for having me. Oh, matron. Mr. Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul. Another lovely article. We should get on with watching some more Bless This House because we we, we've got the same set that we Paul's have. got. I've forgotten where we got to, though. And I, I think we've done about the first two series, Two maybe? or three series, yeah. yeah. Not quite sure yeah. how far we got. No, we'd, uh, get, we'd have to try and work it we'd out. Have to see, we'd have to go back and think. Yes. But uh, now, Mr. Martin Holmes returns mm-hmm. uh, with a look at another episode one. Yes. And this time it's episode one of Doctor Who, The, the Green, Green Death. Death. Oddly enough, I have a peculiar relationship with the Green Death that reaches right into my past because I can remember being terrified by that ruddy maggot creeping up on the lovely Joe Grant at the end of episode three like it was yesterday. Ah, Joe Grant. Despite the fact that I'm a reluctant meter of people, someday I'd love to let Katie Manning know just how much I adored her when I was a nine-year-old. She was like the big sister I never had in many ways, even though I did actually have a big sister, but you know what I mean. My big sister is about nine years older than me, and so when I was nine, she was off doing what 18-year-olds do, and I was at home watching Doctor Who, and Joe was there, metaphorically holding all of our hands through the scary bits. I absolutely bloody loved her. I'm sure Katie Manning gets told that sort of thing all the time, of course, by gentlemen of a certain age with the moist glint of nostalgia in their eyes. The Green Death is also significant because I can remember herring it up the M6 back from some weekend away or other when the Sunday repeats were on in the early 90s because I knew there was an outside chance that if I got back in time I could swap the tapes over in my video recorder which I had left set for all sorts of other I'm going away for the weekend nonsense and then the episodes would all be together on the one tape. Peculiar times. Anyway, The Green Death, episode one. It's perhaps a strange choice when I'm talking about beginnings because it is, of course, the beginning of the end in many ways. Five weeks later, lovely Joe would be gone forever, and within a year the whole Pertwee era would be done and dusted, and the show would never really be quite the same again. I can remember watching that regeneration through the open door of our living room, from between a gap in the stair rods. My dad had a habit of asking me to leave the room when he thought something on TV might upset me, so I became very familiar with the large mirror and heater that were in our hallway obviously saying goodbye to someone they were aware that I had become ridiculously fond of was going to be far too much for me, and so I was exiled, but only to the staircase. Consequently, 
because of my yet-to-be-recognised eyesight issues, for the next six months, a lifetime when you're nine, barely a blink between paychecks nowadays, I was convinced that my beloved Doctor had transformed into the TV puppet Lord Charles, complete with monocle. That said, the following Christmas, along came the mighty Tom, and he drew me in hook, line and sinker, and life would never be the same again. But that, perhaps, is a story for another time. Written by Robert Sloman and directed by Michael Bryant, The Green Death starts with those titles. Yes, I think we should give an immediate mention to the fact that this serial marks the last appearance of the classic Howl-Around version of the title sequence, which, to viewers of a certain age, will always give them a mildly thrilling tingle of joy, despite being replaced by another thing of beauty. They really are a thing of beauty in themselves. The story opens with a quite impressive aerial view of a Welsh colliery, an image that will be very familiar to viewers of that era from the many appearances of coal miners on the news. In fact, it's easy to forget that, in terms of being contemporary, this is about as topical as Doctor Who could get. Interestingly, though these views are accompanied by birdsong, and given what's going to come over the next six weeks, it all appears to be rather tranquil. We cut to a sign on a gate, showing a closed sign has been pasted over the words Lanfairfach Colliery which immediately, and economically, gives us one great big chunk of backstory. The camera then pans past the sign to show us a once familiar view of a pithead lift, which, in the spirit of Chekhov's gun, is bound to prove significant later on. We cut to a miner, scrambling along a tunnel, looking terrified. This is John Scott Martin, who is, like his later role as a security guard in episode one of Robot, destined to become the first victim of this serial. Serves him right, I suppose, for all those years of exterminating all and sundry from the inside of an armoured pepper pot. We then cut to a shiny new chauffeur-driven white Range Rover, quite a modern car in those days, driving past a group of what looks like miners who appear to be protesting outside a modern industrial plant, which is revealed, with the minimum of fuss, to be global chemicals. From the back of the car, Jerome Willis emerges, playing the as-yet-unnamed Stevens, in full power hat, power moustache and power briefcase mode. Funny how rarely you see briefcases nowadays, isn't it? Once the symbol of someone with important stuff to do, it's now become something of an anachronism. He is welcomed by a similar-looking man who has presumably replaced the power hat with power spectacles to differentiate himself in the mighty faceless bureaucracy of the chemicals industry. This is Elgin, as played by Tony Adams, once familiar from the Crossroads Motel, and who will do a vanishing act later on in the story through illness, but that's not something that needs concern us here. Elgin toadying mercilessly, is keen to learn any news from Stephen's trip to London. And Stephen replies that it's all good. This is, of course, we should know means it isn't good at all. But so far, we're trusting these upstanding pillars of the community, especially as they appear to be facing hostility from the working-class rabble outside the gates. Interestingly, that rabble includes the milkman, who obviously has a vested interest in seeing how things are going to affect future milk sales, or, perhaps, in boosting the number of extras beyond the barricade. Well, it's not so much a barricade as one of those lifty-up car-stopping poles manned by the stout security team of Global. As we know, a determined rabble would be over that in a shot, but things were far more civilised back then. Anyway, because Doctor Who in the 70s wasn't without a sense of humour, Stevens unfolds the back of the Range Rover to form a platform before going into a full parody of Neville Chamberlain's I Have In My Hand A Piece Of Paper speech, promising wealth in our time for the now rather cheerful-looking miners. I wonder whether our familiarity with history nowadays would be quite so reliable. I sh presume it was just assumed back then that even the average schoolchild would have been familiar with that moment, 
I wonder how many modern viewers would even know who Chamberlain was. Meanwhile, and just to emphasise the power of hubris, we immediately cut to Downt Pit, although it's a Welsh pit. So in the interests of stereotyping, because we're about to get a lot of that, Down the Pit Boyle. Where, in front of the first dodgy CSO shot of the serial, John Scott Martin is in a mine shaft trying to get back above ground. We jump cut to a close-up of the makeup on the back of his hand, which is kind of glowing and pulsing with a bright green light. The title is The Green Death, folks. Try to remember that if you're taking bets on whole cues being fine. This close-up is also accompanied by a familiar Dudley Simpson sting on the soundtrack. So things are not looking too good for the old Dalek Wrangler. We return to Global Chemicals where the speech is still dragging on, with the miners and the milkman mate all generally looking quite pleased about life. Well, they seem a smiley bunch on the whole. Anyway, as Stevens burbles on about the death of coal, the panning shot of the miners continues across to favour a grim-looking bunch of hippie types, introducing another set of protagonists as Stuart Bevan, playing the soon-to-be-very-significant role of Professor Jones. No, not that one. Pipes up about pollution. Interestingly, it is one of the Global Chemicals mob who identifies him, also mentioning that he is a troublemaker, so we like him already. The stage is set, the two sides of the upcoming fight are now revealed. Meanwhile, Stevens displays an eerie moment which we will later learn is all about his mind control when he icily mutters something about those who resist progress, before geeing up the crowd with a bit of politics, leading to the privileged Jones being shouted down by the miners, whose self-interest, because they need the jobs, Trump's all of his save-the-planet protestations. Same old. Same old. Mind you, when you consider that this is 1973, albeit a post-Doomwatch 1973, this kind of debate on a primetime family TV show is way ahead of its time. Their discussion is interrupted by the emergency siren blasting from the pithead, and despite everything, the miners, after long years of knowing where their priorities really lie, respond immediately as we cut to John Scott Martin, his hand on the lever, bright green apparently, and dead. So there we are. We've visited a strange new world beyond the home counties, been introduced to two opposing factions, seen the sort of baffling and peculiar death that once intrigued Department S, and we've still not been reintroduced to the Doctor yet. Ah, there it is. The dear old unit lab, a home from home for both Joe and the Doctor for these past three years. In a portent of several future iconic Doctor Who images, Joe appears dressed in what looks like cricketing gear and eating an apple, and in between bites, John Pertwee's Doctor emerges from the TARDIS parked in its usual corner in the background, as ever, working on some gizmo or other, which turns out to be the space-time coordinate programmer, in a bit of non-randomising, let's get where we were going for once script editing. Despite their close working relationship, like towards the end of some marriages, neither of them are paying each other much attention as they fill in a little bit of story-so-far exposition about the Doctor, now having been forgiven by the Time Lords, whilst, pay attention at the back there, discussing the value of protein in your breakfast. The Doctor is eager to take Joe to Metabilis 3, whereas Joe, having been distracted by a news story about global chemicals, uh-oh, is determined to go to South Wales, uh-oh, and much poignant hilarity ensues, very much marking the beginning of the end for this particular relationship as they misunderstand each other when Joe heads off to pack her suitcase. There's just time for one hearty, you never listen to a word I say moment, of course, but it's all rather heartbreaking if you know what's coming. Also fleetingly mentioned in this exchange is the Doctor's desire to obtain one of the mysterious blue sapphires of Metabilis 3, which will lead within a year to his downfall. 
Whether or not you believe that things are planned so far ahead, or whether writers fish about looking for significant past moments to build upon, this almost throwaway foretelling can't help but feel more significant now than perhaps it did at the time. We then cut back to Professor Jones in full proto-doctor mode. Although I suspect, as viewers, we wouldn't necessarily have entirely picked up on that yet. Examining the body and talking about the strange putrefaction that has taken place in less than an hour. Things, as they say, are afoot. Events are escalating out of hand. Mind you, in the midst of all this science fiction stuff, the idea of tiny John Scott Martin as the best prop forward Lam Fairfax ever had does seem to be a bit of a stretch. There then follows the last great Unit HQ scene between these three much-loved characters. The Doctor bursts back into the lab with the Brigadier hot on his heels, bellowing no, 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 in response to the Brig's latest request to involve him in some bureaucratic nonsense. The Green Man, it appears, might be down to espionage and unit, in direct conflict with Joe's views, which she makes quite plain as she reappears, is supposed to protect Global's interests. Banding phrases like, oh dear, and got to be stopped, and noble fight in response to the Brig's the nutcase prof and cheap petrol and lots of it rhetoric, now that would have struck a chord in 1973, leads to a disagreement in which, in case you didn't realise she would be leaving soon, Joe all but threatens to resign from unit altogether. She's still not too proud to accept a lift of whales from the Brigadier, though. But I do wonder quite what the conversation was about in the next few hours whizzing along the M4. They probably stopped for a quick pint on the way, I know my brig, especially after that exchange with the Doctor about ordering him to go and the Doctor retorting, I wouldn't advise you to try. But before Joe and the Brig go, there's just time for one last proper moment for Joe and the Doctor, in which, having had a jolly jaunt to Metabilis Three rejected, the Doctor offers her all of time and space, and she still refuses him. This is a brutal, heart-wrenching stuff, especially when Joe points out that everything the Professor is fighting for reminds her of a younger him. Ouch! There's a farewell of sorts, some fence mending in which the Doctor asks her to tell the Brigadier that he'll follow along later, and with that she's gone, and with such a heart's felt and so the fledgling flies the coop, he hops inside the TARDIS to weep for six months, probably, and they say that the old series didn't do emotions. Those who go on about the Briggs' massive house in Battlefield sometimes forget the rather natty Mercedes coupe that he drives in this episode. If you want to line him up with the establishment, you might also want to point out, like the Range Rover earlier, the Briggs' car is also white. But I wouldn't want to get too metatextual with you. Suffice it to say, when the Brigadier stops to ask our ubiquitous lamb Firefuck Milkman for directions, the boyo he gets in response is chock full of mistrust, even though we know that the Brig is a bit of a lovely old softy, really. Maybe he just didn't like, or was seethingly jealous of, seeing pretty young girls in the passenger seats of sports cars driven by older gentlemen. Joe is then dropped off at what will become her future, although we don't know that for certain yet. And with a few mutterings about duty, the Brig makes a whimsical reference to the Doctor going off on a pleasure jaunt, from which we jump cut to the Doctor, on a blue-lit planet being attacked by a huge tentacle something. Hilarious. Joe, meanwhile, enters the Hallwheel community, the hallway of which is emblazoned by the sort of hippie-esque hand-drawn signs saying room for living that mark it out as one of those sorts of places. In his laboratory, Professor Jones lurks inside a very 1970s basket chair, and Joe proceeds to basically repeat her introduction to the Doctor all those years ago, ruining his experiment and generally being exasperating. It must be love. Well, if love is all about whether someone might contaminate my spores and the dreadful news that you've come to join us, Mum or Nancy not passing on messages, mistaken identity that he couldn't possibly be the Professor, despite that younger you jibe earlier, 
more displays of clumsiness. Well, we all get a bit awkward around those we want to impress. And finally being perched upon a stool as she is welcomed to the nut hatch. Professor Jones is a little bit patronising towards Jo, though, with that parking her on a stool and saying that she's only a kid. Especially as it's her we are identifying with and he's a strange interloper. But you could argue that Jo's kind of got used to being patronised by a certain someone. Meanwhile, in the far-off galaxy of stock footage, the Doctor is having problems with a big blue snake. Read into that what you will. The soon-to-be lovers are having a bit of a sulk, and Professor Jones attempts to break the ice with the old I-don't-know-but-there's-one-crawling-up-your-leg shtick. And again, the horrible, creepy, crawly, criming of a leg is something that we will be returning to in later episodes. My, this is clever stuff, isn't it? Having broken the ice, because he couldn't stand the silence, the Prof and Joe start to bond a little over the toadstools and fungus. And Joe, finally, finally twigs as to just who this rather attractive, handsome, dashing and cheeky young Nobel Prize winning scamp actually is. Meanwhile, oblivious to all this, dear old John Pertwee is getting snowed on somewhere too far away. As Joe gets giddy about plastics, petrol and biotech research, what a flirt the prof is, eh? <laughs> On the other side of the tracks, the brig is having a bit of a cockfight with the members of the board of Global Chemicals, and then has to borrow their phone to call Unit HQ, presumably because he really misses the Doctor. Sadly, the Doctor is unavailable, as he's currently nabbing himself one of those blue do-a-machina crystals he was harping on about earlier, and being chased about a huge pair of bird feet left over from the goodies Christmas special, probably. This means we get some lovely close-ups of an old-style 70s dial telephone ringing away to itself, and the brig has to engage with one of those long rambling bouts of exposition that really need to be got out of the way. Happily, this is cross-cut with a similar conversation between Joe and the prof. Do we know him well enough yet to call him Cliff? So, but the whole why object to progress doom merchants oil supply and conservation exchange, as well as the pollution or surprising lack of it in Stephen's process or an alternative technologies stuff doesn't outstay its welcome. Meanwhile, of course, there's the small matter of the first green death to think about. I had a friend once who used to play a drinking game. If the actual title of the film was mentioned in the dialogue, he had to take a drink. It led to some quite sober reflection during the unbearable likeness of being, but nobody ever got to the end of Ted Danson in Dad. Anyway, on that score, the Green Death does pretty well in the sober viewing department. There's some discussion between Joe and Cliff about whether the chemical waste has been pumped into the old mine, another short conversation that will turn out to be driving a significant chunk of the rest of the plot. She heads off with her unit hat firmly back in place, along with a rather alarming, possibly yak-skin coat, slamming the door of the lab firmly behind her, mucks to Cliff's chagrin. Meanwhile, in one of those lovely, quiet moments which are now so rare in modern television, the miners are chatting about what they should do over a nice cuppa. One of them, the great big scary hairy one, announces that he's going down and massive applause for our second favourite comedy Welshman. Well, this is years before Max Boyce and Sir Harry was still around. Talfrin Thomas finally shows up to add some genuine Welsh gravitas amidst all those boyos. Global, of course, choose precisely this moment to decide that perhaps they ought to seal off the mine. You see, we knew they were up to no good. You really can't trust these business types, can you? The brig seems rather worried. As soon as the doctor arrives, being counted in the cockfight by a terse, if he does. He tries once more to get hold of the doctor, who is currently running for his life on Metabulus 3. Rocks of a quite possibly polystyrene nature are bunged as our half-hearted spears. Happily, he makes it back to the lab with nothing more than some terrible things being done to his favourite green jacket. It would return. And answers the phone with a weary, 
I'll talk to anyone. Things are now, like Bessie, moving apace as we jump cut to the Doctor, hurtling along a quite phenomenal and speed limit shattering lick towards Wales. Perhaps we should pause for a moment to imagine the confrontation between the Pert and a South Wales traffic cop. I do not intend to go with you anywhere, sir, especially not forthwith. Perhaps not. John Pertwee is now wearing what has since become one of his most definitive looks, that tartan cape ensemble that he resurrected for the Five Doctors. Maybe it's a Wales thing. As one of the miners descends into the fateful mine, obviously never having watched a show like this before, presumably because of all the rugby and the beer, otherwise he'd know that it's a very stupid thing to be doing, in the blink of an edit, the Doctor arrives at Global Chemicals, where, buoyed up by having his pal with him, the Brigadier declares that he still intends to investigate that mine, and they head off to do so. This gives Stevens the opportunity to reveal his rather devious, sinister, untrustworthy self to us properly, which comes as something of a turnaround from the happy-go-lucky paper waver we saw earlier. He summons the rotter Hinks, his chauffeur, and demands that he engage in some sort of sabotage. His vagueness at this moment seems to alarm even a no-questions-ass sort like Hinks, who shows a little concern at the nobody's to go into the mine, nobody must go down the mine mantra. He's not concerned enough not to follow orders, mind, and like the brutal little henchman he is, off he goes to do his master's bidding. Let's be kind, maybe he's been processed too. Left alone, in full-on sinister mode, Stevens goes over, over to his cupboard and retrieves the biggest set of headphones in the world ever. A set of headphones so impressive that the Doctor would nick them to put in his Professor Clegg brain-frying machine a year later. A set of headphones that even now, let's face it, and I do know what's going to happen, still have me thinking one word, Cybermen. How cool would that have been? Joe, like a fluffy-coated human whirlwind, arrives at the pit head just as the miners are having a bout of angst about whether they ought to have let old Die go down the pit and live up to his name. Die, it turns out, was as big, hairy and scary as we all thought he was, and was rather used to getting his own way, so when we see him glowing green just a few seconds later, it's hard not to think that, to a certain extent, he's brought this upon himself. After displaying huge amounts of schoolgirl-crushy dimness whilst gushing over the prof earlier, suddenly Joe is all efficient and the very figure of unit authority, and dismisses the miners' exclamations about private property, and pretty much takes over the scene with her quick-witted suggestion that her first-aid skills might come in handy. Lovely, but soon-to-be-tragic Bert, who didn't make a great first impression, agrees to let her tag along, and in a jiffy she's togged out in a mining gear and off down the pit. Meanwhile the Doctor, bellowing, Nobody must go down that mine to anyone who'll listen! The brig is speeding his way towards the climax, and Hinks slips out of a building, having obviously done something bad. After we get a glimpse of Joe and Bert in the unconvincing lift again, the Doctor and the Brigadier arrive, with the brig stopping to do one of those famous Doctor Who look finger points towards the spinning lift wheels. Someone's going down, we must stop them! And they burst into the lift control room, to almost nobody's surprise. Almost as an aside, they found out what he knew, that Bert and that young lady from Unit are in the cage, and the lift brake fails to work, and the cage plummets out of control, and we crash zoom on John Pertwee's face, and relax. So that, apart from the end credits, is episode one of The Green Death. Are you tempted to watch any more? Did it draw you in? Would the events of episode one draw you in enough to come back next week? After all, there's been no monster as such as yet. Just the small matter of those glowing green mystery deaths and Joe putting herself in grave, insoluble peril. 
that we hope that she's going to get out of. Over the course of the next five episodes, the tenth year of Doctor Who will be brought to an end by the revelation of those rather iconic giant maggots, a slightly less iconic giant fly, and the machinations of a bonkers, crazy supercomputer bent on world domination. And once all that's been dealt with, we get the gut punch of Joe Grant disappearing forever up the Amazon with some other bloke, sort of, and that single tear trickling down a 2,000-year-old cheek, as someone far more eloquent than me once put it. Personally, I think that The Green Death is a genuine, bona fide classic, and it's one of those stories that I have a lot of respect for, in that it shaped little me into the fan I became. I hope some of that enthusiasm comes across here, and I hope you enjoyed revisiting one of the great episode ones that the classic series produced. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you, Martin, for yes, that lovely you, piece Martin. on the Green Death. Yes, lovely story. Lovely um, Martin will definitely be back next time. He will. Now, we'll stick with John Pertwee mm-hmm. as Warren came round. And when we watched the computer programme and we'd mm-hmm. done all of that, yes. we thought we'd treat him to something else. Yes. I'm um, not sure he saw it as a treat. No, <laughs> because we showed him a whodunit episode. We did. Set in the future. We did. And it's called Future Imperfect. Hello and welcome to the show. Now this week is not just who done it, but where are we? Good evening everyone. Evening. Uh... <laughs> we have been watching who done it? Future Imperfect from the 5th of July, 1976. Warren, what did you think of that? I thought you were my friends. <laughs> I feel violated. <laughs> it's a, how should we say, an unusual episode of uh, Who Done It? Yes. Is it the only one set in the future? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. They do ones in the past. They do, they do a few past yeah. ones because mm. we've seen like Goodbye Sarge. Yeah. Uh, with Mr. Chalice and, and, uh, and the one that's Which I Jack. Which I Jack and, which is, uh, and the Kate snake one. What was the snake one? That's from series one. It's the, the, the dawning of nineteen hundred or nineteen hundred. Oh, right. yeah. well, and William well. Russell, yes, that's nineteen oh, twenties. Yeah. With yeah. his cake. With his cake, yeah. But this one's um this Shocking. One's, <laughs> <laughs> this one's set in set in Neesden in twenty seventy six. Yes. Nothing much has changed. Yes, Big oh. Ben's still there. Yes, because yes, you can see Big Ben from Neesden, can't yeah. you? Can you? No. <laughs> Perhaps they moved it. Yeah, possibly. Uh, but yeah, you, you get a sort of shot of Big Ben through the window, mm-hmm. and the camera pulls back, and we're in a sort of universe where design is sort of silver, isn't it? Everything's yeah. silver. It's spacey, isn't it's it? Spacey, it's spacey, and everybody's wearing sort They're of... living in an Ikea shop. Yeah, mm. everybody's wearing these white suit oh, things white with suits. belts. They all yes. look as though they, they've been imprisoned on the sh- Sharda spaceship, don't they? <laughs> and white hair as well, yes. wonderful oh, yeah. wigs. Sort of white silver hair, yeah. Mm. But, you know, full marks to Bernard Horsfall, especially. Who is main guest star. I yeah. have to say, he's yeah. the only... Rock solid performance yes. all the way yes. through. Yeah. I mean, he he he's the one that gets killed off. Yeah, um, brought back to life. But, mm. but, yeah, <laughs> he does a wonderful sort of death scene, doesn't yeah. he? 
yeah. making noises and flailing about. God it. no! <laughs> <laughs> and then you, then you, you kept, He's got what? Two wives. Two wives. Two wives. Yeah. Two sons and a daughter. And a daughter. No, who's seven. That, who's seven? Yeah. He's like a hundred and summer. He's one hundred and forty. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And he's, his, he's, his sons are seventy. Yeah. His daughter's seven. Yeah. yeah. And his wives are a hundred and a hundred. Twenty or something. Right, I can't mm. remember. I yeah. should, have, should have written it. And out, they have a robot. Yeah. And they have a and robot, got, Mr. Seven. They've got a robot, Mr. Seven, with a dreadful echoey voice. Yes. yes. And we were trying to work out how they, how they did that. Yes. Whether he's got a separate mic or something, mm. or, or how they, yeah, how they actually do the effects. Of course, mm. later on, he's in the studio answering questions from yes, the panel, from and, the panel, and yeah. we couldn't quite work out how it was done. And they got mm. two lodgers. Two lodgers. Well, one lodger. Oh yeah. Because he had a guest. He had a guest, didn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got a, a video phone effect yes. that they have, mm. so mm-hmm. sort of Skype. Mm. But, you, but 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 the pips go, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> and the, the <laughs> who have we got? And the, well, there's a lot of two-inch video tapes. Yes. Um, which is Harry. Harry sort of comes to die because he's having this sort of virtual reality, virtual reality yeah. holiday, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really good. Yeah, good concept. Yeah. way ahead of its time. Yeah, very much. But, but unfortunately, yeah. the fact that they used a t- reel of well, as, as we as we we've said on the sort of computer program piece, um, there's there's some sort of projection of things that are bang on, and some mm. things that they can't extrapolate. Yeah, because no. the idea that you're still using tape at this point, mm-hmm. you know, to us is laughable. But, yeah, uh, it's, it's that thing that... It's a sound concept, though. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it's it's an interesting... Because he, he's, he's got his headphones on. Mm. Huge headphones. Huge, mm. huge headphones. Mm. And this sort of thing that comes down from the ceiling, it's that's a sort his, of hairdryer thing. Oh, no, yeah, it's, that's like, a sun, it's a sunray lamp. Sunray lamp. Oh, yeah. that, oh right, that's not yeah. part of the process, then. Yeah. Right, okay. yeah, it says it's, what was it, three ultraviolet. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But it, it, that's what a sunray lamp would have looked like in the 70s yes. as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But you've got this wonderful... Deadpan line: Our husband is He's dead. dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then you cut to John Pertwee in his desk. And he's, and he's got a white suit on as well. Yeah, he's sort yeah. of dressing dressing for the occasion. Yeah. And a he's really, a nappy chatter. Yes, nappy chatter, <laughs> and a really horrific flowered shirt. Oh. And he's mm. got the three D chess board on his yes. on mm. his desk because three mm. D chess always makes me think of sort of early Star Trek. Star Trek, sort of Spock and when no man has gone before. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah mm. Spock playing three D chess, but. Um, because I never worked out how 3D chess is meant to mm. meant to go. It, it all looks very good, but I, I can't work out the rules. <laughs> but yes, there's there's two wives per husband at this point, and we're in a sort yeah. of yeah. Now we start to get in the sort of dodgy sort with of dodgy, dodgy territory. Because yes. what was it? Um, women's uh, women's li- libs been knocked on the head. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Strike yeah. against Pertwee. Yeah. Strike one. Strike one of many. <laughs> yes. There's, there's, yes there's, there's unfortunately a few things that you wince at. It's yeah. a very 70s production. Yes, it's, it's, it's a... the 70s and don't we know it. Yeah. But more yeah. so, I'd say, than a lot of, a lot of whodunit. I mean... Yeah. 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 Atypically so. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Except for, for um, uh, the one on the train. All right. What, with yeah. the ladies' cherries? With the ladies' cherries, yeah. Okay. I would say this mm. is probably the cheaper of the lot of them. Mm. Possibly, yeah. It's a minimal set. Yeah. yeah. But the guests on the panel... This mm-hmm. week are Magnus Pike and his tongue. Yes, <laughs> <And> <laughs> flailing about his multicoloured tooth. Yeah. Yes. Well, we, we're we're used to uh, Magnus Pike flailing his arms about, but mm. not putting his tongue out quite so much. No, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit disturbing. Yeah. It's a bit disturbing. 
Uh, yes, but he he's been doing um was it Don't Ask Me, mm-hmm. which is his science show. Yes. Then you've got uh, Lindsay Wagner. Mm-hmm. Um, bionic Woman. The Bionic Woman. Now we were trying to work out why she be in the UK at this mm. point because she's sort of meant to be filming the Bionic Woman <laughs> or I don't know what the filming dates for it are but as you said Warren she's probably doing a sort of publicity yes. tour for it or something because mm. yeah. last week they had George Savalas yeah they seem to have opened up to... it's the first two episodes of the um, hmm. is it third series or fourth series is it fifth I think isn't it no it's not the fifth it might also be worth in the future uh, look, looking up looking yeah. because she will appear on the looking yes yeah, she, she's in the in the because um, I remember that being yeah. and interviewing her. All right, we'll have yeah. a look through. We've we've got some look-ins yes. knocking about in various formats. Yeah, we can have but, a look. Yeah. So yeah, they, as I was saying, they seem to have opened this series up to more international guests mm. who yes. wouldn't necessarily know the format, which makes yeah. it but, interesting. But she seems to grasp it. She and does. Works with I, it, I think she, she does, does pretty well. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, yeah. It, Unless they showed her an episode beforehand to show yeah. her how it worked. But is it the only one she does? I think yes. it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. No. Four marks are for. Sort of mucking in, jumping and, in, and, with, and taking it seriously. Yeah, feet, and she yeah. didn't make any um, inappropriate remarks. No, no the rest she, did, of the she did really well. Patrick Mower, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> Bloodhound. No, Patrick Mower soon to go into Target. Mm. Yes, next but, year. Yeah. But what's he been doing in sort of recent years, Warren? Playing lovers. He <laughs> lovers. Yes, <laughs> but he was he's finished Special Branch in seventy three. Now, how much of Special Branch have you seen? Or uh, I. I've seen all of it, unfortunately. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we haven't got up to the Patrick Mower stuff yet. No. But it's, yeah. it's still Darren it's Nesbitt just, for us. Darren Nesbitt stuff is the best. I won't go into <laughs> that because I, I I love doing an item on that. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, special branch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't compare the two series. Okay. Yeah. And he's been in the Sweeney as well. Oh yeah, a couple. He's of, in a yeah. couple of episodes couple of, of Sweeney, Sweeney as a yeah. comedy Australian yes. con man. Yes. With. I'm sure it's Nicky Henson. I'm not really sure though. No, is it's uh, no. Who, who's who was? Oh, he? George Layton. George Layton. George Layton. Yeah. Yeah. Lazenby, then. Yeah. yeah, George Layton. George Layton. And then you've got this week's TV Times competition winner. Who looks bewildered? Paul Henderson, mm-hmm. who's yeah. sixteen yeah. and a half, yeah. and looks about thirty. <laughs> yeah, it looks yeah. 30. I, I, I had to rewind it and go. Yeah. Hang on, he's not sixteen and a half. He's got his like, he's got his best suit and tie on, yeah. and his and his haircut and his mm. glasses and. Um, yeah. An yeah. interesting haircut. Mm. Yes. Very 70s bowl. Yes. But did we say about the names of the uh, oh, family? Yes. Oh, the yes. family. So it, it's Mr. Wendell. Yeah. He's yes. the victim. That's Bernard Horsfall. Yeah. And his two wives are Jade mm-hmm. and Amber. Yeah. His sons are Anagram and Poe. <laughs> Anagram was born when he was doing In a crossword. Crossword. We don't know what happened when Poe was born. <laughs> and his daughter's called... What's his daughter called? Crystal. Crystal. Crystal, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, so all the women seem to have... Um, Names are named after precious stones or semi precious stones. However, the person playing Crystal was definitely not seven years old. She was very. And there was a bit of banter, wasn't there, between her and Thing. We won't repeat it. No. Well, it makes me, my skin crawls. Yeah, I will come to a certain line in a a minute. But uh, (laughs) uh, they open Mr. Seven's head, which is Mm -hmm. full of wires. Yes. And I love the thing that future technologies is wires. And of course, it wouldn't be. Um, and so uh, Bernard Horsfall was brought back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, um, apparently, he was savaged by a tiger on the tape. Yeah, in Morecambe Bay, was it? In Morecambe Bay, he's afraid <laughs> of animals. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, you said the robot looked incredibly shifty. Mm. His eyes, when he was so, he was looking really shifty. That's what made me think he he did murder him. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he keeps on waving his hands about. You know, he's got he's some sort of kind agitation, of tremors, yeah. sort of. 
It does, it might have been his reprogramming that causing him to do mm. that. But you said, Warren, they looked like a family of Bee Gees. Yeah, they all dressed like, All they needed were the um, medallions and hairy chests, even the women. And they'd be the family of the Bee Gees, <laughs> wouldn't they? Uh, they talk about how um, sort of you know inflation in the past meant that it was £100 for a loaf of bread. Uh, Close to it now, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, I was going to say not far off. Um, and they start having a meal, which mm. is... Of course, pills, pills, space pills. pills. Oh, what? <laughs> and the, we cut to the Chinese people yeah. eating in the spare. What are they eating out of? Oh, what was it you said? Seventies um, pub ashtrays. Yeah, huge, great, deep seventies pub ashtrays. <laughs> but as um, a line about, um, is this one duck or haddock? Well, they've both been in the same box, <laughs> so. A bit of cross-contamination on the pills there. Mm. Um, Mr. Sevens threatened with being replaced. Uh, with Mr. Eight. Yes. <laughs> what so, happened to the previous six? I then? don't know. They've been replaced. That's, 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 that's the thing. Um, yeah, the, the uh, uh, guests are offered portions of 69. Oh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, Mr. Lim comes on and he's walking on the raised bit of the set. Oh, and, oh of course. Which, which creaks like Bilio and yeah, you think he's going to go, go through, through it. it. Yeah. It looks uh, very, very precarious. It does. It? Um, there's a line about I've been putting your antique record collection on tape yes and again well you know yes we do sort of make backup copies of things Mm -hmm. these days but again not on tape not on tape if we can help Mm it Um, and then you get this stupid sort of end bit where (laughs) Bernard Horsfall sort of basically repeats what he did before he said before so Mr Seven puts the tape in again and And kills kills him him again again. yeah (laughs) you know wah 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 um, so why didn't they bring him back to life again? Uh, probably he didn't have any power. It would have killed uh, him a second time. Sure. Maybe well, you could only do it once. Him, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Magnus Pike wants to... First thing Magnus Pike wants to look at is the wires in Mr Seven's head. And I, yeah. I, I sort of understand that. Um, yes, uh, there's a line about... Um, I notice you're playing with your balls. Because <laughs> <laughs> they've all got these got sort of stress toys. Stress toys, yeah. yeah. And uh, who is it who's got the balls? Is it anagram? It's anagram, yeah. 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 Um, Are those your balls? Is what Lindsay Wagner said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are those your balls? You're playing. No, yeah. no, yes. they're my own balls or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a line about Mister Seven being a pet Dalek, yeah. and he's got a bionic headache as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, I, I will return briefly to Magnus Pike line about um, what was it being on the go <laughs> or something, which is. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I think you should watch the episode. I'm not yeah, going to go into no, that any, no, any, no. any anymore. Um, Magnus Pike never seems to get it right. Anyway, no, does he? whenever he's on, he never seems to get the right person. He's convinced he is right because yes. he goes for three suspects this mm-hmm. time. It always yeah. seems fun, though. Well, he gets one right, yeah. I suppose. But he, mm. he he's having fun, though, isn't he? He's, yeah. he's being his usual self. Of yes. Um, you've got you've got the whole questioning thing from from the panel where where they have to sort of answer the answer the questions um they don't do too bad at the Im- oh. improv no stuff i no. mean some people are well they're not asked anything too outrageous it's yeah. not like they're asking 
been asked what school the artist is painting in, which is what happens on one, one oh, yes. episode. That's the Kingsley Amos job. Yes. Uh, Mr. Seven, though, explodes at the end. Yes. yes. Very badly. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. There's a couple of sort of puffs of smoke and the odd... And a whiteout sort of effect, yeah. isn't there? And then yeah. he falls over. But they're doing it live, so I can understand why you couldn't, why yeah, you couldn't do too much. That. You don't want to yeah. set your actor on fire. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But actually, Lindsay Wagner sort of wins in the end. Yeah, um, she does. Yeah. We won't say who actually did it, mm. but yeah. um, I suppose you've still got that um, sort of mystery to come if you haven't, <laughs> haven't watched it. So, full marks to her. Yeah. Uh, you said about the tapes, Warren. Yes. That the, the, the vast range of tapes. Well, you can that, go anywhere in the world. On this particular shelf. Well, on yeah. the shelf, yeah. yeah. And we wrote them down. And you could choose a virtual holiday to Margate. Manchester, Morocco, Malaga, Malta, Mull, or Morecambe. Or Mallorca, which is what, where, where oh, yeah. he thinks he's going oh, yeah. to, and it's, it's not. Where the tigers come but from. But this is obviously the M shelf. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. below it, there's a tape that says African. Yeah. <laughs> so, which I don't quite understand. African what? Ever been to Morecambe, Warren? No, no, no. no. Ever been to Margate? Yes. All right, what's in Margate? Um, Cockle eels. Uh, Cockle eels. Cockle eels. Jolly eels. There's a theme park in Margate. What's it? Dreamland. Dreamland, yes. But to me, this sort of virtual holiday to places like that, you might as well just sort of go on Google Maps and go on the sort of walk up and down the high street on your. Less likely to meet a tiger. Yes. Yeah, because it's some sort. We should actually explain the reason he meets a tiger is they have. Thrill tapes. Oh, that's right. Because, yeah. because everybody lives so long now, because they, they get bored. So, so if you want a thrill tape, you can that have a thrill tape. That sounds dubious in its earth. Yeah, to, to make <laughs> your life more thr- interesting. Stick us on a thrill, thrill will you? Yeah. <laughs> but being mauled by a tiger doesn't really sound very thrilling, just a bit scary. Yeah. So, but, you know, each to their own. <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 as whodunit episodes goes, this is, this is a weird one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and you you don't think it can get any weirder, and then you watch the last series and you realise it can get a hell of a lot weirder. (laughs) You warned me. Well, you didn't. You said we're just going to watch you (laughs) and see within thirty seconds. Gob open was it? Gob uh, chin had hit the floor. (laughs) Chin had hit the floor, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it was the fact, and the biggest thing that got me was the fact that Bernard was taking it completely seriously, and the others were really hamming it, Mm. and. I was laughing at that more. Yeah. And then when he did his death scene, I'm sorry, it all <laughs> fell apart yeah. for me. Bernard Horsfall is, you can always rely on him to give absolutely. an absolutely straight yeah. down the yeah. line performance. Yeah. Doesn't no matter, matter what, what crap he's being thrown no at No matter him. what he privately probably thinks about yes. it. It's such yeah. a shame that we never asked him when we went to yeah. uh, yeah. Regeneration. Yeah, I wish this. I'd known about that. I've, I've I never heard him speak no. about that. No. 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 He probably didn't even remember he did it. Well, I know you'd have to show it to Just him. One job you? in. Could you in imagine in the shock on his face if you showed him a picture? Oh, my God. Why am I wearing? But, you know, bless him. That was. That was professionalism, was I think, on display there. Yeah. You know, so. it, it also, to a so certain hats extent, mm. or bad wigs reflects off. Yeah, mm. the, re- the flexibility of that sort of format you can go for the show. Mm. Um, the, the writing's not... You, if, if you're looking for an Agatha Christie, you're never going to find it. <laughs> no. In a, in a, no. It's a lovely light... Yeah, it's always a light format. Yeah, it's, isn't it? it's fun to watch, and there's an episode. Yeah, with in the exception th- of this one, yeah. it's a couple of episodes. We have watched it more than we have watched it one twice, time. I think. Yeah, and there's an episode. Ambulance at the door. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an episode in a couple of weeks' time. Mm-hmm. 
um, where uh, people keep dying off as they're being asked questions. Oh, right, yeah. Final verdict. And Anna Blackman's on the panel and she gets really cross because she really? keeps asking questions and then people are dying. She doesn't get an answer. <laughs> and it's, it's very bizarre. Mm, and now Martha weird. thinks there's somebody at the door. Sorry, oh, Martha. Martha's looking who was at the door. That yeah. was you, right? It was Uncle Warren, Martha. <laughs> just, just banging away. Yeah. Well, there right. you go, chaps. Yeah, thank you for taking me for yeah, that it's emotional right. roller coaster. Yeah, yes. I, I, I think we owe you a cup of tea now, don't we? <laughs> and a bit yeah. of cake. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of cake. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Men and women toiling on their articles is an image of the way podcasts have always been in the past. The next step is to introduce machines that can write their own pieces without human direction. The introduction of automation reduces the workforce but allows for greater flexibility of subjects covered. One of the world's most innovative teams is beginning to look at the podcast as a kind of production line which could feature several different shows simultaneously. Andrew Trowbridge That means that instead of writing articles on the Blackadder or Bergerac, we can have articles about Doctor Who stories that feature cookies. But there aren't any Doctor Who stories that feature cookies, are there? Why, certainly there are. Patrick Troughton, he asks for some cookies in the invasion. No, he doesn't. He asks for a pussy cake biscuit. But biscuits are cookies. And then Matt Smith, he has some cookies in Victory of the Daleks. He has some jammy dodgers, and jammy dodgers are cookies. Why are you obsessed with cookies? Well, it doesn't have to be about cookies, of course. You could do stories that feature pickles. I'm going to regret asking, aren't I? In World War Three, Jackie and Mickey make a Slitheen explode by throwing pickles at it. Go away, you're strange. Can I have a cookie first? That was episode 22 of Round the Archives, starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Martin Holmes and Paul Chandler. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Bless This House, The Generation Gap was by Vince Powell and Harry Driver. And the producer was William G. Stewart. a poem about computers on TV. Way back when computers were the size of a room a mechanical mansion took mankind to the moon nowadays your booster could fly people to Mars whilst kids hack the Pentagon in flashy coffee bars. Back then we knew just how the future would be television told us all about this exciting technology how computers would come to dominate the earth claiming to be our benefactors for all that was worth. Rooms wall to wall, with blinking colored lights burbling familiar bleeps of radiophonic delights whirring great big spinning spools of magnetic tape electronic machines with our future to shape. Punch cards were shuffled, spat out and fed back and slotted. Cardboard ghosts now haunting the machine, the future is arriving.
The future is now TIM. The future is so much better with an ADI acronym. WOTAMs will operate in thought analog space intruder detector SID. Had us all MAK was a remote electromotic agent killer night in disgrace 2000 was Kit Farsillier. Doctor who met us in Tanton, world domination a bimorphic operational system supervising station then ran into the oracle and to the war machine, mentally surely those computers had far bigger plans than this. The woman just went mad a bit. Care of the mighty Tom but at least it didn't want to end all life with Adam bomb Ziggy stayed at home whilst Sam leapt to change beliefs Holly. Hilly and Quee got some much needed comic relief. Batman had a bat computer in the bat cave that was bat freaky super smug. Dr. Theopolis hung around with Twicky. There are some friendly helpful ones like BOX and K9 whilst Mr. Smith the fireplace had the odd draw line. The general spent time washing speed learned minds but went bang flash because it didn't know why. Out in space the N5 computer took on Captain Kirk wanting in the main it seemed to put him out of work. Liberator ZM was a big brown ball of flashing squares blew up in deep space where they couldn't get the spares then Blake's lot got a slave built into Scorpio for a time which ended up crashing on a planet named Gauda Prime. Hitchhiker's Guidebooks Deep thought and eddy and here's something for which the world's not ready genuine. People personalities like the one in Marvin when Zaphod went to steal and turns out he got a bargain. You think that a computer ought to be your pal honestly people? Does nobody remember HAL? There's not much fight in a flashing box of lights unless that is its ORAC. Both touchy and uptight. An automated future setting Earth's people free in the bright white heat of new technology in the blink of a bulb humanity's fate is sealed gullible mankind starts to see truth revealed. Like David Brent for every TIM there's a boss you see many of them seem intent on starting World War Three. humans must prepare themselves to have new cyber masters who aren't creative but can count things up so much faster. In preparation have a set of insolvable equations ready or make. Computers wonder what precisely love might be saved the world once again with a witty payoff joke as the room is filling up with big blue clouds of smoke. So as that tiny tiny voice is fading down to zero rejoice. Rejoice. As the humans are again the heroes yet remember it was Harold who built the machine and people made Samaritan. If you know what I mean. Computers may be here to stay in pockets everywhere sitting on desks in front of us and becoming more aware from time to time remind them who really pulls the strings and beware of anybody bearing overstretched acronyms. That means that instead of writing articles on the Black Adger, the Black Adger, or the Black Adger, we could have an article about Adgers. <laughs> that means we can do multi-cropping in a different way and each row could be something different. So now instead of planting fields of wheat or corn, we could be planting fields of cookies or, or cornflakes or, or, or sauerkraut or, or pickles. <laughs>